Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. I am delighted to uh, welcome my friend Zach Happenstall uh, from ZS Multifamily to the show uh, today. Uh, thank you for coming on, Zach. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Sakar, for having me on, man. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, and hopefully we can provide some value for your listeners here today. Incredible. So Jack is a young hustler uh, in the Phoenix uh, submarket. Uh, their group controls well over uh, 400 units spread across uh, five or six syndications. Uh, their uh, cumulative assets under management is close to $50 million. And Zach, as young as he is, he started coming from a medical uh, background, coming into multifamily and he is a young hustler. Uh, several of his partners are good friends of mine. And we thought to kind of unravel his story and will be very encouraging for listeners to kind of uh, firsthand listen and hear, uh, you know, Zach's story, how, uh, you know, how hard he's working and what it takes to be successful in today's multifamily game. Uh, so with that, Zach, um, kindly give us uh, your background as far as, you know, how you got started and now you are in multifamily and uh, help us understand uh, your background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the intro, Sakar. And so, I, and I know you and I were just talking a while um, sure. prior to recording about how we're both um, first generation multifamily investors, right? Sure. So we really uh, kind of got to grind it out. So a quick background to me, I, I was born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona. So I pretty much lived here my entire life. Um, I lived in Colorado for a short time. I had a football scholarship. I wanted to be in the NFL and I wasn't, I realized that wasn't going to happen. And so mm. I came back to Phoenix and I actually wanted to be a, a sports reporter and a journalist. So I got a degree in journalism mm. and I was a live news anchor for a short time on Arizona PBS here. Mm. And I was a show on Fox sports network. So I was, I was doing like sports reporting and, and hard news um, anchoring, which was really cool at first being on live TV and then having sure. all that experience. But then I, I quickly realized that's just, that wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't mm. want those hours all the politics and you really don't make any money. And so um, I was delivering medical equipment nights and weekends mm -hmm. while I was going to school to pay for school. And sure. my boss at the time had told me you can make pretty good money in healthcare marketing. So mm -hmm. I was 21. I'd graduated, decided I don't want to pursue journalism. I had all this student debt. Mm -hmm. And so um, of all things, I got a job um, as a hospice marketer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So hospice care is, is basically like mobile nursing and caregiving that sees patients with um, terminal illnesses at their private homes, assisted livings, whatever, et cetera. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my, my job was to just wake up in the morning, drive all around Phoenix and walk in cold to hospitals, doctor's offices, assisted living, et cetera, and build relationships. And they had somebody, sure. from hospice, they call me. So anyways, I, I was doing that for about um, four years. Mm -hmm. And in 
And that can be a very lucrative private business industry. You know, it's very competitive. It is lucrative. And one of the angles that I like in sales and marketing is you're continuously relation building. You're trying to understand, you know, develop resources, contacts, and things like that. And, and you know, there's this thing about sales and marketing where you're distilling down the complexity and understanding that, okay, what, what exactly is important? What does this need? And you're trying to kind of stoking those fires, so to speak, and, you know, sort of relation building. But but go ahead with your thoughts. No, 100%, Sakar. You said it best because I didn't know anything about hospice and it was really weird. You know, a guy in your early 20s, like, what am I doing in hospice care? Sure, sure. I didn't have much of a healthcare background besides delivering that equipment. And so, yeah, just like you said, it's all about active listening, right? And, and learning what people need and educating them. So that was my job. When there was a referral, they would call me. I'd educate the families and get them signed up. And so I, sure. I was fortunate um, at a young age to be making pretty good money. You know, I, I came from like a lower middle class family. So we weren't like poor, but we weren't wealthy by any means. So sure. mm-hmm. by the time I was 23, I was making 150K a year. I was making more than both my parents combined. And I bought a house. Sure. And then by, mm-hmm. I was 20, by the time I was 24, I had gotten my MBA. I paid off all my school. Um, and I was, I was doing well. So, so I was, I was very blessed to became a, I started as a marketer, became a director of marketing and then became a, a partner in this company. And so, um, I was making over 200 K a year, had a house, had no debt, had over hundred mm-hmm. in my bank account, but I was just kind of feeling, um, empty. You know what I mean? I was just kind of mm-hmm. fulfilled. I, I just kept chasing the next commission and I had already kind of achieved all my goals in that industry. And I wanted to create, um, passive income or at least gain back control of my time. So in, um, in January of 2018, I said, okay, screw it. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know what I want to do, but I need to figure something out. So I, I resigned from hospice and I sold my equity in that company. And I said, and, and it wasn't anything crazy, Sakar. I didn't become like a millionaire. I made a couple sure. hundred from selling it. Mm-hmm. It, wasn't, it was a minority stake. But um, I said, I'm going to live off savings for the next, next 12 months at least. And I'm going to figure out how to create passive income so I can gain control back over my time. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew I wanted to achieve it through real estate somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just went through this natural evolution. I was initially looking at flipping houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at mobile home parks. And then I learned about multifamily. And I liked the fact that with multifamily, you could scale it, right? And you can, sure. and syndication. I, did, I learned about syndication and how you can, you can use other people's money and, and you're doing them a favor. And then I can gain sweat equity in these deals. So, so long sure. story short, um, I, lived, I lived off savings for well over a year, about 14 months. But um, it took 10 months from when I quit the job to get the first deal under contract. Sure. So that, that's 10 months to car from not knowing anything. Okay. So I was, um, I was basically cold calling, going to conferences, trying to meet people. Got that first deal under contract in October of 2018 and closed February of 2019. So 14 awesome. months mm-hmm. we got when I started. Incredible. And, and your story, Zach, reminds me of, you know, sort of the hunting or the fishing or, uh, you know, that analogy where we say that you kind of uh, eat what you hunt. And in that sales and marketing role, it, it, that's exactly how it is. Like the more sales you can generate, you know, you're pretty much commission based. So you are yeah. kind of hustling every day. And, 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 yeah. the, and, the, and the reason I bring that up is that that is what it needs to be successful in this multifamily uh, game as well. And as, and as we all can relate, Zach, that brokers are in, and we all know that that is how they operate is that they are calling, uh, you know, different owners. They are saying, hey, uh, is your asset uh, for sale? We have buyers, would you consider selling? So it is again, that sort of sales job that brokers are doing. And right. we are also in that, in some sense of fashion that your background is similar, right? Now, Zach, it, help us understand 
that your first deal you said it, it took 10 months to uh, you know sort of uh, do it which which by the way is uh, a whole lot more quicker than a lot of folks that we know I mean, so i definitely want to congratulate you there but in terms of uh, like closing towards that first deal can you help us understand sort of the education component the different relationships that you would have built plus uh, you know there's this whole uh, uh, array of things where you are walking the deals, you know, perhaps uh, looking at different OEMs, underwriting all of that, right? Could you yeah. maybe distill down all of that, uh, Zach, like how, how all that happened in a space of 10 months? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, Safar. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I mean, yeah, like I said, it was like an evolutionary process. When I first quit the job and I decided I'm gonna do this, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking apartment buildings and I didn't even know what the word syndication meant, okay? So I learned sure. a ton. And so as I kept learning and learning, um, I started listening to podcasts like yours. Okay. Then I started reading the books. And so once you start to get all the lingo down and then language, you can understand how these things work, right? It's, it's not like rocket science. You know what I mean? These, these value add, a value add business plan is not, it's essentially a big flip. Okay. And sure, so sure. you have to learn the lingo and then it's, then you get to the point where, and I know a lot of people like this, right? They come to our meetup and I talk to them and I try to help them, but they don't ever actually take the action of calling and meeting with people and starting to build those relationships, okay? And so um, the biggest thing that was kind of a turning point is when I actually started to start reaching out to brokers and set up meetings, reach out to property management companies, reach out to lenders. And I, I started with the property management companies, okay? And I, I wrote a list of like five pages of questions that I had just I had just created from books that I read, okay? So mind you, I probably sounded like a, a dork, you know what I mean? Like I probably sound like I was trying too hard because I, I was trying to overcompensate, but sure, I wanted sure. to at least have some, some idea. So I had all these questions about their operating processes and accounting processes, things like that. Mm -hmm. I go in there, I interview all these property management companies. I tell them, I'm Zach. Um, I have a group of investors from healthcare, which wasn't really true. I had like one guy who said he would invest with me, but you sure. have to show confidence, right? And sure, I was, sure. absolutely. And you go in there and, and you just try to vet these companies. And then at the end, I would say, Hey, do you know any brokers who are kind of like nicer guys who would want to work with somebody who's new? What about lenders? What about insurance? And I get attorneys and I get all these recommendations. Then I call the broker. I say, Hey broker, it's your broker. I got your, your phone number and name from ABC property management company. Sure, sure. And, and I set up a meeting. So I'd set up a meeting with these guys at their office or at a coffee shop. Sure. And I would go in there to the brokers and, and like you said, Sakar, these brokers, they, they only, they live off commissions. Okay. So they don't want to really waste time. And, and a lot of them, you know, they just get complacent because they get a lot of guys that aren't, aren't for real trying to reach out to them. Sure. So when, you, when you're setting up these meetings, you want to go to these brokers and at least have some type of criteria sure. to know that you're focused. So um, I, I would go in there and tell them, hey, I'm looking for like a one to two million dollar asset value add in, in like a B or C area in these areas of the valley. <clears throat> things like that, you know, and, mm -hmm. and this is my property management company that I'm going to work with. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I know that property management company. Okay. And then it just, it makes you sound legitimate, right? Because mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you just go in there and you say, oh, I'll take anything one to 20 million, they're just going to be like, who is this guy? He's never done a deal. It's sure, not, sure. You know. No, but, but, but I love that fact, actually, Zach, there back, because, you know, you are reaching to first person, then, you know, asking the property management company, hey, would you know a broker or an insurance, uh, uh, yep. you know, broker around our uh, industry that helps, you know? And, and you, it gives you that instant credibility where I think, 
when someone is introducing that, hey, we had Zach visit our office and he's a young investor looking to invest. Would you have any assets that your 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 office has for sale? And, you know, instead of like call, cold calling a broker, if you are referred, oh boy, I mean, talk about, you know, uh, you're taking action and being, I think I, I like to always say this is that it's not the resources. It's really your resourcefulness that kind of opens the doors. And, you know, uh, as, uh, as the coach uh, always uh, tells us, right. Uh, that ask not how, ask who, uh, who can do these things. And, 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 right. and, and your statements kind of remind me along those lines is that you're kind of traversing the chain of relationships and kind of getting more and more credibility. Uh, but then how did the, your first deal came about, Zach? Yeah, no, that, that's a great point, Safari. I agree 100%. You have to leverage other people, right, to get to where you Absolutely. need to be. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Gary, by the way, I'm going to answer your next question, but it is terrifying. So people are going to listen to this and be like, well, this guy, he was on TV and he was in marketing, so he's used to this. It didn't matter. I thought that I'd have confidence. I was terrified and I had no sure. confidence because I was like, I'm young, first of all. Like I'm, sure. as, as of today, I'm 28. I was 26 when this happened. Sure. So and I, you were brand I, new to the multifamily game for sure. Yeah, brand new. I don't have any family money. I don't have a rich uncle. I don't have a lot of money myself. And it's like, I feel, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like, I felt like I was just wasting people's time, but you can't think that way. Okay. Sure. You have to fake it. Just fake it till you make it. Right. And then you'll gain the confidence. But I'm to answer your other, your next question. So yeah. So basically 10 months go by. I'm just burning through my savings, making no money. I've lost all my confidence. I really lost my sense of identity because before I was like, wake up in the morning, I know what I have to do. Go out there and hit the streets, hustle, find sure. referrals, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. with families. Um, but this is a whole different thing because you wake up in the morning and it's like, there's nothing to find that you can do. There's nobody to hold you accountable. I don't know if I'm making progress or not. Sure. And it's very, very uh, discouraging. So um, one of the things is these deals, to get a loan, you have to have, combined net worth and, and liquidity of a certain amount to sign these loans. And so mm -hmm. I started on the conferences. I met one of my partners, Robert Shefchik at a conference in Dallas, mm -hmm. and he also lived here in Phoenix. And so we mm -hmm. kind of hit off and, and he's a higher net worth, high liquidity guy. And he had been trying to find apartments for a couple of years, just hadn't had any luck, just couldn't really focus, had a lot of stuff going on with his kids and his family. Mm -hmm. So we just had to partner up. The first deal, it was a 36 unit deal and it was on market. Okay. And so this wasn't like any crazy off market deal. It was on the market and, um, go, going back to what we were just talking about Sakar. So when I was reaching out to all these property management companies, initially, one of the property management companies guys said, Hey, you're meeting with property management companies do a hundred units plus. You might want to start with a smaller property management company who can do a smaller deal. And mm -hmm. I was like, I was hesitant because I wanted to go big, but I was like, okay, whatever. So I had reached out to a guy named Tom Zara who had gotten referred by this other guy. I said, Hey, my name is Zach. I understand you own a small property manager company. I want to meet with you and discuss how this would work. So I meet sure. with this guy for an hour and we talk about property management. That's it. It goes well. I leave. An hour later, Sakar, he calls me and he says, hey, I was impressed with our meeting. I can tell that you're eager to get into this. Mm -hmm. What I didn't tell you is I also own apartment buildings um, and I own a small multifamily brokerage. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. He's Interesting. like, <laughs> yeah, I no idea. He didn't tell me that because he was just feeling me out. He's like, I like kind of what you're doing. He's like, if you can find a deal and bring capital, then I will help you and lend my expertise and, and possibly manage it or run construction, whatever. Awesome. Like, oh, mm -hmm. So that, that was kind of my first partner, Tom Zara. So I didn't mean to forget about him. So it was Tom. And then I met Robert who had high net worth, high liquidity. Mm -hmm. Well, months and months go by after I had met both of these guys. So 
you just go you go you go highs and lows right like it's absolutely it's absolutely the, high, the harder you work the luckier you get i mean exactly I'm, highs and lows I, first, like, I met these guys i got my partners i got my property management i'm good to go then none of the deals pencil sakar months go by everything's overpriced well one day tom says he sends me this deal he's 36 video he says hey this deal looks like it might be decent and I underwrote it. And by this time I'd underwritten at least 30, 40 deals. Hmm. And it, sure enough, it penciled. I was like, oh my gosh, this one actually pencils. Sure. So we said, screw it, let's put an offer. So Robert and I, we put in an offer, it got accepted and we were terrified after that because we were like, sure. oh crap, it got accepted. What do we have to do? Uh -huh. So then we, then we have to push forward, you know? So then we, we call an attorney, we get the deal under contract. So now um, it was $50,000 of earnest money, non-refundable. Hmm. So now Robert and I, we go through the due diligence, um, there's some issues we're going to proceed. We're each 25K hard. So we each have 25K non-refundable. Sure. Mm -hmm. And there was different things we had to do to navigate this because this was a $3.4 million purchase price. Mm -hmm. And we had 1.4 million of equity. We planned, we had initially planned Sakar to syndicate this deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. But after about 30 days of being through due diligence and we're into the deal, we'd started the loan process. We couldn't really find anybody interested in it. Cause we're, cause we don't have any, we have track limited record. networks. Yeah. We have no track record. We have limited networks of people who believe in us. <clears throat> and so it's like, Oh crap. And so I'm just starting calling people who I met at these conferences um, and just ask their interest. I get a call from a lady named Elisa Zhang, who I had met at a conference mm -hmm. and she just calls me out of the blue. I don't know how she found out, but she called me. She says, Hey Zach, I heard you have a 36 unit deal in Phoenix and I have a 12 unit deal that I'm selling in Seattle. How about I M31 exchange my 12 unit deal? I'll bring sure. 650K of equity into your 36 unit. Boom. And we'll, and we'll do what's called a tenant in common or a TIC, a tick. Sure, sure. I, that sounds great. Let's do that. What's a tick? I had no idea, but I, <laughs> I learned what a tick was. And we ended up doing a tenant in common, a tick deal through that. So that, that brought about half the equity. The deal wasn't penciling. We were going to use a third party manager company. It wasn't penciling because the renovation costs were too expensive. Mm -hmm. So we got creative and I talked to Tom, my, my guy that I'd met earlier who owns a property management company. He's like, Hey man, I don't want to manage any more deals. I want to be a principal. And I said, okay, how about you run all of our remodels, run our renovations for us with your crew. We'll give you sweat equity in the deal in order for doing that and overseeing it with your construction crews. Mm -hmm. He ran it at half the cost of what the other third party manager company would use. Mm -hmm. Then we get the other third party manager company to actually do the management. It cut our renovation costs down so the deal would work and it penciled. So we brought, we brought in Tom and he was doing the, he was doing all the renovations, overseeing it. Um, at this point, I, I started Sakar with about 250 to 260K. Okay, that was all my cash. Mm -hmm. uh, I, had, I, I was renovating my house. I had burned through savings, invested in some other stuff and I had 160K left, okay? Mm -hmm. I had 162, 164. I put almost all my money into this deal. I put 160K sure. into the deal um, and I was all in. Robert put almost 300K. We brought in the 1031 for 650. And then I found a couple other people that put in about 150 each and mm -hmm. we made it happen. And this was, this was a very stressful first deal because we had a, a seller who was very dishonest about the roofs and about lying about insurance policy assignments. Oh, and stressful. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was stressful because of our, our lack of experience too. Like little mm -hmm. things that come up like that we didn't underwrite for. Like for example, there was old electrical sub panels inside the units and we didn't realize insurance will require us to replace those. And we had sure, a budget. Sure. Well, mm -hmm. All these things keep coming up and your money's non-refundable. Long story short, after four months, we close on the deal and 
and boom, we made it happen. We had a tenant in common. So that's the first deal. <laughs> Boy, I mean, a lot more stresses, a lot more checkpoints, uh, you know, so much uh, of, uh, you know, so many uh, points where you can dig in. So during your due diligence, so you, what was that like? I mean, you, you're saying that, oh boy, the roofs are bad. The electric looks bad. I mean, yeah. was there any more deferred maintenance and things like that, that, yeah, that kind of gave you almost a pause uh, of sorts? Because I mean, I can imagine like all these things, I mean, especially the roof and the uh, electric is not, uh, you know, it's not like a simple thing. It's, it's a definitely a capital, uh, you know, intensive uh, repair. Yeah. It was, yeah, it's a good question, Sakar, because this was, I mean, we've done five acquisitions now and we've been in due diligence on other ones that we backed out of, but this was the most stressful because like these guys had hidden the roof issues. We had, we had a, a couple roofers come out and say the roofs looked great. And then we had a third roofer come out who kind of dug into it and realized there was four layers of roof on there. It was not even up to code. So, so it was like way more expensive than we thought. You know what sure, I mean? Sure. Unfortunately, this was a tenant in common, meaning everybody in the deal is active. We're all using our own personal cash. There were no mm -hmm. past investors. Mm -hmm. And that's what we wanted to do, um, ideally, because we can prove the concept. But so the, the roof budget goes to the roof because we had to completely replace roofs, like strip off the roof and put oh, on. Oh, sure. It's so roofs. expensive. Oh, it's yeah. Expensive, yeah, on, on four different buildings. So we did four new roofs. Um, we did new electrical sub panels in every single unit, which is about 650 a unit, not not crazy, but it adds up. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. we, did, we did new exterior paint. Um, the sewers were in, were in decent shape, but this was a 60s build, you know, so it had sure. referred tenants that previous owners had not really, really taken care of. And, and, and part of it is having a dishonest seller, which I've seen the smaller the deal in general, you're more likely to have like an unsophisticated, shady seller. Not always. Sure, whereas sure. large deals, more sophisticated sellers. Um, but so yeah, and it was just it was also just because we were not experienced, right? And we didn't know what to look for. So sure, sure. And, and that that is the part sometimes scares me, Zach. You know, I, I mean, you know, you you rightfully pointed out like the four layers of roof. I mean, for an experienced eye, that that would be an instant uh, something that you would look at. I mean, and it and it goes on to show. I was just on a I think two days ago. I was on a call with somebody. They were showing me a. Uh, the 380 unit deal in Orlando. And I'm just showing them from the OM that I said, listen, the roofs ha have grayish spots all over, you know, and you can see the flaking paint, which probably is indicative that your fascia boards need to be replaced and things like that. So th those are some of the things that uh, I think get sometimes missed in this uh, uh, sort of, you know, and again, uh, another That's thing in right. your case also is that it's first deal. I want to do it. I'm so committed. So sometimes I think that uh, motivation to do it sometimes kind of gets in the way that, okay. And it's a classic story that we say that, hey, uh, now I have it under contract. Now let's find a reason or what would be a logical reason that will uh, make me not do these deals. And, and sometimes, you know, that just that mindset shift sometimes can also be very powering because you're saying, uh, you're asking the question in an opposite direction saying, Hey, I think I have this under, uh, I mean, I have my LOI accepted, but are the issues big enough that, uh, you know, that will be uh, like a big uh, capital intensive project of sorts. Right. So now tell us Zach that what was the rental spread on these things? Was there a, like a good value add on it uh, on these deals? Yeah. Good, good question, Sakari. And I like the point you just make, cause I, I forget about that, but 
yeah, there was at least five or six times where I felt sick to my stomach, like a pit in my stomach. Like, oh, <laughs> oh man, like, we need to back out of this deal. And I just lost 25K and I've already burned through tens of thousands this sure. year. And it's like the broker's not, the broker's going to think that I'm not a, a real guy now and my, my reputation to be destroyed. Um, so you don't want to be too aggressive, especially if you're syndicating and you have passive investor money. That's why if you can, I, I advocate buying your own deal first with a group of people so you learn. But I mean, you don't want to be too aggressive where you're doing anything stupid or irresponsible. Sure. Fortunately, we had, I mean, we had very conservative underwriting and we had contingency penciled in to absorb a lot of these costs. That's great. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you also have to, you also do have to realize that there's almost no deal that's going to be perfectly clean. There's always these hurdles that come sure. up. Right? Sure. Diversity. And you, like you said, you have to figure out how can I solve the problem, right? And how can, how can we make it happen? When the renovations didn't pencil, we could have said this deal won't work, but we got creative and we, we leveraged a relationship and we had Tom run the renovations. Okay. So it worked. So, so yeah, so that, that's kind of how we did that. And then I'm sorry, what was your other question? Sakar? No, no I, I was just asking that, you know, if there was any rental premiums, like, you know, sure. the yeah. Rental yeah. Low and things yep. like that. Yeah. So the business plan was good, good question. It was 36 units, 26 of them were two bedroom, one bath, and 10 of them were three bedroom, one bath. Hmm. So it was an excellent, excellent unit mix right across the street from Grand Canyon University, which is a large booming university, and also right across the street, more importantly, from an elementary school. And so the majority of our tenants were families with small children, and we saw them walking across the street to that elementary school. We, we didn't have any students at the university. And so we felt like it was a good, well-insulated area. It was a value-added property. And so um, when we were shopping the comps and, and I personally secret shop all the comps for all of our acquisitions. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll drive to all the comp competing properties and I'll go in there and ask what their rents are, their square footage, their fees, their amenities, go mm -hmm. tour, take pictures, get their finishes so that we can conservatively see if we renovate these finishes, we can achieve X rent. Okay. So when we were looking at the comps, we realized that there was two factors in play Sakar, and these mm -hmm. two factors in the Phoenix market, need to be in play for us to do a deal because it's been the fact on all of our deals. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is because Phoenix is such a hot market, the prices keep going up, cap sure. rates keep getting compressed. So those two factors are, we need to have value add upside, right? Which means we can renovate the units mm -hmm. to increase the rents. And it's been proven out either on that property or around the area. Mm -hmm. And we also need what's called loss to lease, meaning that the units are not at market rent. So that means that if that lease expired today, I could renew that lease and get a bump 50, a hundred bucks without doing really anything. And, and we sure. don't ever do nothing. We'll, we'll like change the carpets and turn the unit. Sure. Um, but it just, it shows the market. So, okay. So if there's, if the competing property is a hundred bucks above you and it's the same finishes, you know, you've lost a lease. So on this deal, we realize we have both of those components in play. And so our, our, our business plan was to renovate, all of the interior units hmm. and to push those rents conservatively 150 to $175. Okay. What, what we ended up doing, it's been about 18 months now, 17, 18 months since we acquired it. Hmm. We did, we, we renovated 26 of the 36 interiors and we were getting anywhere from two to $300 premiums. Wow. Um, either it's a two bedroom or a three bedroom. Sure. And, and it was just a combination of loss to lease, bringing it up to market for that classic unit plus mm -hmm. renovating it and, and creating the value add to get the even higher premium. And sure. so we, we blew our numbers out of the water, um, which was good. Mm -hmm. And I can say right now we're, we're actually under contract to sell it. We bought the deal for 95,000 a door 
and we're under contract to sell it for 148 a door. Wow. In 18 sure. months. So we bought it for 3.4, we're selling it for 5.3. And nice. so it's going to be a quick, high velocity, good deal for us. Um, and and um, we basically just went in there, we replaced all the roofs, we did new exterior paint, we installed a camera system, mm-hmm. we installed barbecues, um, we cleaned up the landscaping, and then we did those interior renovations I discussed. And when I mentioned, when I say interior renovations, what we did, we, we do what's called a light value in, okay? And sure. so mm-hmm. we don't go in there and move walls or restructure anything. We did um, new vinyl flooring, okay? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll resurface countertops, mm-hmm. we'll paint the cabinets. Sometimes we do new cabinet doors, but on this deal, we paint the cabinets, add hardware, new black appliances, mm-hmm. um, new interior paint, like a gray paint, new sure. baseboard. Um, <clears throat> new LED lighting package mm-hmm. and, and then new faucets. Sure. Okay. How, how much are you spending uh, typically on, on these uh, interior renovations, Zach, to, like the, the light yeah. value add piece of it? Yeah, good, good question, Sakar. And, and just so people know, because I know a lot of people in Texas and they're only spending like three to five K a door, which seems crazy low because Phoenix labor costs are so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on this deal, because it was a smaller deal, we were spending about 11, 12 K a door. Wow. Uh, things mm-hmm. a lot and, and and it is for these smaller deals because you have smaller property management companies everything's more expensive mm-hmm. uh, um, we're renovating a deal right now with it's over 100 units in the last couple we've done where we're spending anywhere from like five to seven five to eight k a door for mm-hmm. the same finishes just because we're using a larger property management company that has more buying power things are cheaper sure. um, yeah. phoenix phoenix i guess compared to texas that's the only comparison I have um, tends to be higher on the, uh, the renovation costs. But the, the flip side is um, we have much more favorable taxes and in property taxes and insurance. Rates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. And, and a couple of questions there, Zach, the numbers that you're describing, are they strictly interior renovations or are they uh, kind of a uh, average uh, that includes some of the uh, like, you know, let's say in your first deal, you said you had to do a lot more roof replacements and things like that. So is that the entire CapEx budget that's uh, approximated or averaged out uh, to per unit? Uh, is that the figure or is that strictly the interior renovation uh, figure? I just want to make sure I get that right. Good question, Sagar. Great question. That was just the interior renovations I was just discussing. I yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, trying to rem- I'm trying to remember in our 3016, it's been a while. I want to say we spent... And, and this is, it seems high for a smaller property. We spent 80 to 100K on those roofs because we had to strip off all the roofs and then re put, re, redo the new roofs. And so, sure. mm-hmm. um, so we easily spent 80 to 100K on those roofs. I mean, a hydro jet, the sewer lines was like five to 10K. Um, we we, uh, <clears throat> we resurfaced the uh, parking lot. Mm-hmm. I, can't remember, I can't remember how much that was, honestly. Maybe. Well, that's all right. And uh, speaking of this uh, renovations also, uh, Zach, that all these uh, renovations that were happening, let's say interior units and things like that, was there any uh, construction uh, sort of uh, fees uh, on top of the management fee that was charged by uh, the property managers to you? Good, good question, Sakar. So on that first deal, we did not pay any type of what you call construction management fee, because sure. that, was, mm-hmm. that was my buddy and business partner, Tom, mm-hmm. who was running those renovations and he was getting sweat equity in the deal mm-hmm. in exchange for doing that. But yes, on all the other deals, and this is typical, is you're gonna pay anywhere, what we've seen is a 10 to 15% construction management fee. 
sure. for your property management company. That adds up, right? Yeah, it adds up. Yeah. So you're sure. on a hundred unit plus deal in Phoenix, you're typically going to pay a 3% property management fee, mm-hmm. which is 3% of monthly collections. So whatever the property manager collects that month, as far as rents and other fees, they'll take 3% as their fee. And then sure. on top of that, when you're renovating a, a deal, let's just say, for example, let's just say that it costs $10,000 to renovate one unit. Mm-hmm. Well, they're going to take, if it's a 10% construction management fee, they're going to take $1,000 as a profit for them for overseeing everything. I sure. think that mm-hmm. the 10,000 is going to be all your, all your materials and your labor. Okay. And then they'll take a percentage for overseeing everything, getting their contractors and doing it. Sure, sure. Now, after the first deal, Zach, what what did that do to your sort of your momentum? Did that yeah. suddenly uh, turn into you are getting a lot more deals or perhaps getting easier to approach with brokers and things like that? Or did that also result into it was easy enough for you to uh, raise capital as well? Could you maybe kind of uh, share that uh, sort of the second, third deal journey and what it did yeah. to your momentum? Great question, Sakar. Yeah, I mean, it, it helped exponentially. And I think, in my opinion, in hindsight, I think it was more for me psychologically. It just mm-hmm. gave me so much more confidence because mm-hmm. I'm in the game. You know what I mean? Now sure, you feel like sure. it's been like a year and I feel like I got a monkey off my back. Like I'm actually mm-hmm. in the game. I'm a real real estate investor. Sure. And, and I had gone through so much adversity in that first deal of dealing with insurance and the lender and the attorneys and the seller and everything, you kind of know what to expect in the process. Sure. It gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and, and, and I felt like I belonged and it, it definitely did resonate with brokers because, mm-hmm. because the difference between somebody who doesn't have a deal and somebody who has one deal is huge from a broker Absolutely. Mm-hmm. because you've proven that you've closed. Sure. You know what I mean? And so, so yeah, I mean, we, we got that deal under contract October, we closed in February. Um, and then, we got the next deal under contract. It was a portfolio of two deals. It was a 59 unit and a 76 unit, like mm. the first or second week of April. So just not even like eight weeks later or so, mm-hmm. we got the next deals under contract. And when we were, and that was an on-market deal as well, and we were bidding on it, we went through a best and final process and we were able to point to the deal we had just closed. We said, look, we're active buyers. Mm-hmm. We closed on this deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we met, we worked at this broker. So you mm-hmm. put that broker down as a recommendation mm-hmm. and it, it gave us a lot of confidence. And so, I mean, I spent, I spent 14 months from when I quit the job to when we actually closed and acquired the first deal. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was in February. And then between February and the end of August, so you're looking at six months, we acquired three more deals. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we went, so yeah, so like in January, I guess if, if you started when I got the first, when I got the first deal under contract, which is October, let's mm-hmm. just say the month before that September, I had no deal under contract, never done a deal. Mm-hmm. Well, less than a year later, we all of a, we all of a sudden had um, four deals, 35 million of assets wow. you know, and, over and over 300 units. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, so you can scale quickly. And it was just getting that first deal, like you said, getting momentum. And sure. then it does help you raise money as well, because we pointed to that deal and we said, look, we, we could show investors what we're doing. We said, look, we bought this deal with our own money. We're proving the concept. This is what we're doing. We're renovating these units. We've mm-hmm. already been achieving our business plan. And then you can show them how you're going to simulate that in this next deal of syndication. 
Sure, sure. Now help us understand your deal structure, uh, Zach. I think uh, I imagine you know tenant in common is perhaps a, a slightly different, but perhaps let's say a typical syndication, like let's say a 506B, uh, which is a blind syndication, no advertisement, or perhaps 506C. How, how are you structuring the deal uh, as far as, you know, returns, any prefs, uh, like sort of the uh, GP and LP splits and things like that? Sure. Yeah. It, it, it depends on the deal. I mean, we've done five deals. Two of them are ticks, like you said, three of them are syndications. Our first two syndications, and, I, and I'm not going to talk about any like actual investor return amounts um, just because of SEC purposes, but mm -hmm. I'll tell you what they're, what, what they're how it's structured, like you said, Sakara. So the, the first two deals, we did a straight 80-20 split okay. where mm -hmm. uh, passive investors have 80% of the deal. The, the general partners have 20% of the deal mm -hmm. with no acquisition fee. Mm -hmm. and no preferred return okay 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 from people we had talked to what we learned was a good way to do it because um it just helps us to prove the concept we personally as gps or sponsors we have our own personal money in all the deals okay? sure. so we have in mm -hmm. the game and so what, what that means is when it's a straight 80 20 split is that when you start to do distributions both the gp and the passive investor will receive cash flow distributions at the same time and then you'll both get paid pro rata upon a sale Okay. Sure. Sure. No fire. No. No fees or anything like that. Sure. Um, no waterfalls or nothing like that. No waterfall. Yeah. Correct. Just okay. very straightforward, simple. Okay. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, I like and, that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very straightforward, simple. The last deal we did was more industry standard, and we're, we're working on a deal now. We're doing the same structure where it's a more it's a traditional syndication model where it's a seventy thirty split. Mm -hmm. He goes to the passive. Thirty percent of the deal goes to the GP. Mm -hmm an 8% preferred return to the 8% preferred cash flow, meaning that we as GPs do not participate or receive any cash flow distributions until the passive investors have received 8% cash flow on their money each sure. year. Okay. Sure. sure. Mm -hmm. And we do um, a 2% acquisition fee. Mm -hmm. The purchase price um, is paid to the sponsors upon closing on the front end. Mm -hmm. uh, and on those two deals, we don't have, um, we don't have a waterfall on the last deal we did. On this, this deal that we're working on now, mm -hmm. um, we have a waterfall where based on based on certain hurdles, what the passive investor gets, sure. it'll, yeah. But it, it will convert, right? Yeah. And I've had investors and people who argue both ways. I mean, I had one investor who wouldn't invest with us on the 80-20 deal because he mm -hmm. said, you guys aren't being compensated enough. I don't know that you're going to be incentivized to want to continue to work on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas some people say, I don't want to pay you an acquisition fee on the front end. Mm -hmm. I, the past investor, has been paid. Mm -hmm. So it goes, it goes both ways. And we've modeled it out so far from a VP perspective. Mm -hmm. It's almost identical in terms of overall compensation. Overall sure. the, the difference is with the 20, with the 80, 20 split, the GP is getting paid during the right. Yep. And then on the, on the PREF return with an acquisition fee, the GP gets paid on the front end with an acquisition fee is not going to make virtually any money for, through cash flow during the whole of the property because the PREF return eats up all the cash flow for passive mm -hmm. investor. Mm -hmm. So you, in the front end, you don't really get paid during the whole and you get paid on the exit. So it, and, and it, really, it really equates to be almost the same thing. Sure, sure. And, and, and as you correctly stated as well, Zach, is that it just depends on the market, how quick the deal velocities and things like that. I think there's a lot to right. be said about uh, sort of just that velocity and, you know, how quickly you can exit and sort of, uh, you know, have appreciation behind your back and things like that. Right. 
now speaking of property management zach uh, are you, what is your strategy are you typically uh, keeping that management in place or you have some favorite management companies that you perhaps look into uh, you know kind of bringing them on once you close on these yeah so good good question um, yeah we have not retained the the current on site in any of our five acquisitions so we've always used the one that we have a relationship with and we actually have so on our first deal, we use a company that specializes in smaller deals mm -hmm. and they've done a decent job, but they're not as well equipped for like a larger deal, like 70 sure. to plus mm -hmm. units. And so we actually have three different property management companies right now. Mm -hmm. uh, one is because the deal is smaller. Um, there's a second company that we used that we thought would be really good. Um, and then things weren't going that well. So on the next deal we did, we tried out a new company, which we really like, and we may mm -hmm. transition other deals to them. And so, I mean, you, you really just need to kind of ask around the market from other owners, mm -hmm. brokers, people mm -hmm. like, hey, what, what is the best management company for this asset class and asset size? Mm -hmm. okay? There's just different people who specialize in different things. Sure, sure. Let, let, let's talk about that, Zach, right? Like, uh, explain us the, uh, some of the detail, like, you know, ha having you seen all of this now, right, you know, folks who are good and companies that are bad, right? What are some of the things, you know, obviously you mentioned one there, like, you know, the size of the deal or the class uh, or nature of what that asset is like, what, what would be some of them, you know, what would be some others I should say? Yeah, like some other issues? Uh, sure, like would that be, you know, more like systems, the people or processes? Right. Could you maybe kind of yeah, delve good, into some of that question. detail? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, so some, like for example, we put a, we put a management company on um, a few of our deals um, that, that we thought was larger. Uh, well, they are larger and we thought they would be good, but they're not really suited for C class. They're more suited for A class hmm. luxury. You know, hmm. just their approach, um, their staff, things like that. And you have to look at um, these management companies. They really need to be in line with their clients. Okay. And what sure. we didn't realize is that most of their clients are like large institutional grade investors. They're not hmm. private syndication groups like us. Sure. And so hmm. their payroll and their marketing expenses were running really heavy and it wasn't necessary. It, it wasn't necessary for our property. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like we felt like we were overpaying and we weren't getting the best communication um, mm -hmm. or, or reporting from mm -hmm. them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like they were so big. We didn't have like good communication. Whereas we started working with a different company that's still pretty decently large, but most of their clients are private syndication groups that specialize in value add some value add assets, C-class assets, hmm. and they, they can run payroll a lot lower and do just as good of a job. Um, and, and they don't spend all this unnecessary money on, on marketing things that we have to pay for that may not be effective for C-class tenants. Sure. Okay? sure. So, so it really just comes down to communication, um, payroll, marketing admin fees, um, and then like what portal they use, right? Like mm -hmm. we have different portals. We have, we have got Appfolio, Buildium and, and Yardi, you know, we actually, we actually like Appfolio the best after working with all of them. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. just kind of have to see what, what you think is the best. Sure, sure. Uh, thank you, Zach, for all the detail. Just a couple of uh, quick questions now. Uh, as you approach now this, Zach, you know, you're obviously increasing on your deal size, you're getting more and more deal done under your belt. How are you uh, kind of networking and finding newer investors? What are some of your sort of uh, ninja tricks, if I may call for capital raising, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, prior to COVID, it was going to like events, conferences, things like that, and, and building relationships with people. 
Um, now, a lot of it, since we have investors who are, are happy, like word of mouth, you know, mm-hmm. so they're referring mm-hmm. people and then they'll set up a phone call. We'll set up coffee. We'll have several phone calls and just create that, that substantive um, pre-existing relationship so that everything is, is compliant. So a lot of it is referrals, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of like the stuff that you do a lot, Sakar, like the branding, like being sure. on podcasts, social mm-hmm. media, things like that um, can help can help create interest where if people want to reach out to you so that you can try to educate them and help them, then over time, I mean, none of this stuff happens overnight, but it takes a lot of time. Over time, sure. mm-hmm. you can develop these relationships and, and people may ask you or go to your website and ask to set up a call. And then you have several phone calls. So I know when you're starting out, it's, it's really challenging and it's overwhelming. Sure. Um, and it's frustrating because you're like, you feel like pressure to raise this money, but you have to be compliant with SEC guidelines sure. and people mm-hmm. aren't going to give you their money unless you prove in a contract. So um, it, it's, it's good if you're newer to partner with somebody who's experienced mm-hmm. and you can learn from them and, and gain from their knowledge. Sure, sure. Now, one last question, Zach, here is as you're growing bigger, right, you obviously accumulated a team around you and things like that. So someone who's listening, uh, could you maybe share some of your sort of experience so far as to how multifamily game is different than like, let's say a typical, uh, you know, single family or some other ventures that someone may do? What sort of different team members are needed? And if you could also maybe speak to some of the skills that are needed for those members so that the whole group as a unit can be cohesive and kind of, you know, do bigger and better uh, deals as, as they move forward as a group. Yep. Yeah. hundred percent. Great question, Sakar. So yeah, I mean, as the cliche saying goes, it's a team, a team sport, right? Multi-family sure. because there's so much to do. And um, even if you are extremely talented and smart and you could do any of the tasks proficiently, you can't do all, do them all proficiently. Mm-hmm. There's not enough time, not enough bandwidth if you want to really truly scale. And so when you're trying to find your partners, I mean, there's really, there's more skills. It's, there's really like three primary things that I, I, I identify mm-hmm. as roles. And mm-hmm. I think one is you need to have somebody who, who likes underwriting and likes numbers and sitting in front of spreadsheets. Okay. Like for mm-hmm. me, like I got my MBA, I've taken the accounting classes, all this stuff. I understand it all. I just sure. hate doing it. I just cannot stand sitting in front sure, of spreadsheets. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, mm-hmm. although you had the background, I think your job and sort of you cut your teeth into sales and marketing. So I would imagine that you would be an extrovert, outgoing personality, perhaps just sitting on computer and cranking into spreadsheets probably would not be of great interest to you. What, what would be some others perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. So, so underwriting, you need to have somebody who likes, who's heavy in the numbers and we partner with Bikron Sandu. He's our partner who we met. Mm-hmm. He's a CPA, has an economics degree. He loves to underwrite and he's gifted at it. So that's important. Sure. You just named a role where you need to have somebody who's kind of like your acquisitions or relationships person who's meeting with brokers, getting deal flow, meeting with property management companies and managing these relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give you an idea, to give you an idea on our team, Sakar, I know you and I kind of talked about this offline. Sure. My mm-hmm. role at our company is acquisitions and, and sourcing capital. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'm focused on finding new deals, executing the loan process, communicating with the attorneys and getting the deal closed. Robert, he has a, he has a architecture degree and a construction background. He's focused on day-to-day asset management post-acquisition, okay? So mm-hmm. he's on property management phone calls, going to the properties weekly, checking on stuff. Bikron is kind of a hybrid where he's, he's more the numbers guy. And so he's underwriting deals, 
um, watching all the financials. So on the front end, he's underwriting deals for acquisitions, and after closing, he's watching General Ledger, watching financials, things like that. So sure, if, sure. If you really can get like a numbers guy and like a relationships guy. Those are your two biggest things, and then it's more just about having having the bandwidth to do asset management and get on the phone calls, things like that. Sure, sure. And as you move forward now, Zach, is your target market uh, mostly uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale, all of that area, or are you kind of uh, uh, you know targeting other states or the markets? Yeah, good question, Scar. So, so we're just focused on Phoenix right now. Okay, mm-hmm. so we know we're lucky that we live in a one of the top multifamily markets in the country. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we honestly, some people do it. I'm not saying you can't do it. We don't feel comfortable at this point going out of state. Okay. We, we feel like we're, we we just want to focus on doing a good job with asset management, mm-hmm. with good broker relationships here. We know this market inside and out. So we really want to try to focus and try to dominate our local market. But as we scale up, we would be open to that. You know, if we started to hire asset managers and we can delegate more then we would, we would look at going into other markets, but Phoenix is our, our sole focus for now. Couldn't agree more. And I think as we all know, I think as we move through the pandemic, I think uh, that market has, I mean, I think probably six or eight cities that have beaten uh, or, you know, that was like coming back in a big way, whether it's Mesa, Glendale, uh, you know, Scottsdale, all of these cities are just like resounding so quickly it's it's phenomenal to see uh, you know that kind of growth and I, I and i always like to say that it's really those markets or sub markets that you have to see what sort of movement there is and it plays yeah. such a crucial role into uh, the organic or the natural rent growth that we say and, and there is always that whole x factor that you will have more and more investors looking to buy the deals and hence you get that appreciation and pretty soon you know within less than two years sometimes as we all know that you are exiting at some lucrative uh, returns uh, would you agree zach 100 you said it right i mean that's why we like phoenix in my opinion phoenix is the strongest multi-family market in the country because of fundamentals when you look sure. at population growth job growth and job diversity Sure. I mean, we have the, we have, we're number one for the last three years for new population growth in Maricopa County. You got all these people coming from California, coming from Washington State, coming sure. from Oregon, and then you got all these people coming from the Midwest who, who just want a warmer climate, and then there's all these jobs here. So yeah, there's so much demand that I think it's a really, it's a really strong market. Incredible, incredible. Uh, I know, Zach, we're just about time for our show. I, I appreciate your insights. Oh, one quick last question. As the struggles that you have experienced, you know, uh, what are some of the best lessons that have kind of stuck uh, with you and shaped your personality? What is some of your sort of uh, interior, uh, you know, I should say internal drive or that tick that gives to your personality? What what are some of your uh, sort of mindset lessons or some advice that you would maybe share with your listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's, it's just my faith. I'm Christian and I really rely on my faith and it, and it drives me. And no matter, so no matter what, what you believe in, if, if you have faith in, in what you're doing, that you can continue to push forward, I think that will help a lot. And then one of the biggest things for me, Sakara, was when I really dialed in my daily habits and my daily disciplines. Sure. Um, and there's a book called Miracle Morning um, mm-hmm. for millionaires. I, I read that and I started practicing that. And that really was a turning point for me too. Once I was able to get consistent where I go to bed earlier, I wake up early, I hydrate, I, mm-hmm. I journal, I pray, I work out every morning just so I have a clear mind. It relieves anxiety and it, it allows me to continue to stay hungry and ambitious. And, and so it's just tough. Like you have to attack in multifamily. You have to keep attacking, but you can't put too much pressure on yourself where you get discouraged and quit. 
because I felt like that several days where I almost quit or maybe I did quit for a couple of days. You know what I mean? Sure. But then I thought, oh, never mind. I'm coming back. And so you have to just kind of be patient. It's an oxymoron because you have to keep attacking, but it's not going to happen quickly. You have to be patient. So just, just stay with it. Be faithful, be determined. And things, you, you may be learning in your mind and you may be progressing, but you, can't, you just don't know it yet. You don't recognize it. So you just keep pushing. You'll get a breakthrough eventually. And so you have to just outlast everybody else. Incredible, incredible insights. I think I love your mindset, uh, you know, in at such a young age, uh, the experiences uh, that you have had and the learnings you came out of it. I think it's a whole lot more fruitful for someone to listen to you, understand your challenges and some of the action that you took. Uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners have Everyone, uh, I mean, as we all know, have their uh, share of their trouble and pains. But I think how you kind of look at it or the outlook perspective towards all these things matter. And then, you know, taking action and understanding what's next and what's that next domino that's important. So thank you, Zach. It is a pleasure to host you as a friend, uh, as always, and kind of, uh, uh, you know, understand your story and uh, get to share uh, your knowledge and experience with uh, all our listeners. So thank you for coming on. Uh, uh, please share with the listeners how they can find you and learn about your exciting company as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Kai. I really appreciate you having me on, man. It was a, a great interview, and I thank you for your time. And, and, sure. yeah. um, and you guys can just go to our website, zhmultifamily.com, Z-H-M-U-L-T-I, uh, family. There's no hyphens or anything. Or you can email me, Zach, Z-A-C-H at zhmultifamily.com. And there's a contact us link if you want to set up a call, fill that out, and we'll reach out to you, and we'll get on a call. And I'm happy to help you if you have anything you just need to learn about get over that hump. I'm happy to help however I can. Oh, incredible. Thank you for coming on. And I am also Sakar Kavle at premiumcashflow.com. Any viewers, listeners, uh, kindly reach out if you're interested in knowing about multifamily or passive investments. Uh, you can contact us at premiumcashflow.com. We can hop on a short phone call and understand what your desires are and uh, see if we can, uh, you know, have some synergy and help uh, uh, each other there. So uh, th thank you to all our listeners and viewers. Uh, and thank you, Zach. Uh, I wish you much success and I'm sure we will be talking soon on uh, some more uh, big deals that your group is doing. 100%. Thanks so much, Sakar. Talk to Thank you soon. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.